right, so a couple things that we're going to talk about briefly as a family before we dive into the Word of God. And the first one, a little bit more of a serious note, and that is, as we prayed last week, we need to continue to pray for Israel. You understand what I'm talking about? Like, as much as we're like, oh, you know, I already know about that. Well, it doesn't matter if you know about that. This is still a crisis for them, which means it is a crisis for us, right? We care about our family all over the world, right? One thing I want to be very clear about, anytime we are not going to follow cultural narratives, meaning I don't believe in the either-or scenario that if I'm going to pray for Israel, somehow that means that my love is not there for Palestinians. Do you understand? It is an and, which means people that make decisions about war are very few. Everybody else has to deal with the aftermath. So we have a lot of people dealing with pain, hurt, fear, all of that. We are here to defend them. Does that make sense? So therefore, all the families torn apart, all the hostages, all that stuff, so that it does not escalate beyond what it needs to. Our job, when we are in safety, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. In other words, if we're doing okay, our job is to defend those who are not doing okay. So we do not sit back and just kind of casually ignore it. We engage. Would you pray with me this morning? Let's do that. Heavenly Father, your eyes are already on the Middle East. Your eyes are both, uh, Lord, on those that are the recipients and those that are the perpetrators. God, I know that there are so many families torn right now, so many trying to handle the grief of loss, trying to handle how do I put my life back together as a wounded individual, the fear, the children. God, we are asking for you to do something miraculous. We are asking for deep peace, deep resolution. We're asking for a protection of the innocents, a protection of civilians, no matter where they stand. God, I just pray that as you know, Lord, your your Jewish people are precious to us. And so, God, we consider them family, uh, that, that across this planet, Lord, we have so many that call you Lord. And those that do not yet, Lord, we pray for them too. So, Father, we just ask in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, would you be deeply in that situation, sorting it in all the mess, in the most beautiful way you know how. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And, you know, this last weekend, as Pastor Brian was talking about, um, it it was just... An example, as we have so many people, over a thousand people where we're all praying our guts out and we're praying, Lord, would you hear our cry? You know, I remember we started kind of the evening around like maybe 4.30. We're doing prayer over people, anointing, and and then I ended up leaving here. Last person got prayed for at 10.30 at night. Get home around 11.30, get to bed around 1, and it was one of those times when you say, you know, I'm exhausted, but it's a good exhaustion. You know what I mean? <coughs> I'm allergic to preaching. <laughs> and, and when I pray for everybody, right, uh, that when we wrote down all of your names. We wrote down what your needs were, and every day I've been praying for you. It is not a one night, it's our new reality. And I've been especially had the little ones on my heart. I prayed for Ava, who wanted so desperately to walk. I prayed for little Riley, so that she wouldn't have seizures anymore. You guys, I carry that stuff every day. I wake up praying for them, I go to bed praying for them. On the way into church this morning, I have them written in my phone, and I'm still praying. And it's not like I'm pulling back with adults. You know, it's not like you guys got the weak sauce prayers and the kids got the real ones. I'm praying for you too, all right? You didn't get ripped off. But there's something about seeing people I care about hurting that just puts me into a different mode. And that night was so special. I am only one of hundreds of prayer people that were praying that night for a miracle. 
Did we have miracles? Yes. Does it ever feel like enough? No. So what are we going to do? We're going to keep fighting until everybody is free. Does that make sense? And on top of that, you know, this is as I was sharing with you before. This is Bridgeway. We go hardcore in the word. We're talking about accurate, expository preaching, but we're talking about signs, wonders, and miracles. We're talking about the fullness of the word and the spirit together in all of this. And on top of it, check this out. This weekend, we had 38 people show up to get baptized. Praise God. Yeah, come on. We're talking about the lost found darkness to light. We're talking about transformed lives. And then we finished the service this or early at the nine o'clock. We finished the service. Two young ladies come up right in their, in their 20s. They're dressed, ready for church. They said, I want to get baptized. So sure enough, we added two more in the water, right? We had Kayla and Brooke. They're like, man, it was awesome, right? Then we got a younger lady named Savannah. She's like, boom, they're getting baptized. I want to get baptized. She gets baptized, right? So I'm still wet, right? On all, you're like, wow, your shirt looks weird. I know. I know. It's because that once again, they were saying, I don't care how I'm dressed today. My Jesus is more important. And, And I'm just telling you, this is church that we are interacting with God, we're experiencing God, we're connecting with God, we're so excited about what he is doing and what he's gonna do, we are just scratching the surface of everything that God would love to do through us. You guys, we are the church, we are the church. Church is not a building, it's us. And we go out of here as the church, we are the salt and light of the world. Things will change the more and more we get close to Jesus. So we're going to keep talking about it, keep talking about it, keep talking about it. And that's why we're here today. And you know what? Honestly, you know, a lot of stuff we talk about, you know, it's pretty heavy and, you know, we got a message coming up. And so I thought that in order to kind kind of bridge the two, I thought I would share with you this morning a little bit about my colonoscopy. I feel like we're family. There's things you need to know. A quick show of hands. How many have had that honor? You guys have had a colonoscopy. Come on. Yeah, we're bonding right now. This is so good. All right, if you don't know what a colonoscopy is, ask your neighbor. So a week and a half ago, I go in for my fourth colonoscopy, right? Because family history, I've been having them since I was 35. I consider myself blessed. So I go in for these colonoscopies, right, every five years. So I go in there, and I am now at the age where my doctor's younger than me. That is weird. Y'all, don't you know what I'm talking about? You're like, why are they allowing middle schoolers to do this? You know what I mean? Aren't you in health class? How in the world do you have a doctor's license? Anyway, my doctor happens to be this young dude, super smart, super fun, just this great guy, right? And so this time, in the past, they kind of did the little, we're going to kind of keep you awake thing. Well, this time, they're like, we're knocking you out with propofol. And I was like, yeah, right? I was so excited. Uh, So anyway, give all God the glory. Okay, anyway, so I'm getting ready and I'm getting prepped to go into this thing and uh, they're wheeling me in and I'm just trying to be super cool because I know, you know, they probably don't have everybody happy about this, right? So I was like, hey, how you doing? Trying to be all nice and everything. And so I wheel into the operating room or whatever it's procedure room and in there is my doctor and then the anesthesiologist, which side note, anesthesiologist, super nice young lady, she says, oh, when I put this into your IV, it's going to be a little spicy. (laughs) What are we having, Mexican food? What are we talking about? Okay, those of you that are not in the medical field, here's what spicy means. It's going to hurt like crazy. It's going to go into your arm and it's going to burn your arm up. That's what's going to happen, but it's a little spicy. Anyway, she's a stinking liar. Anyway, God bless her soul. Okay, now, so all of a sudden, I'm wheeled in and I'm chatting with her. She has a little syringe ready, right, which is going to knock me out. And, uh, and I was talking to him real quick. So the helper to the doctor who's going to do the procedure comes walking in. She's putting on her scrubs. She's got the cap on and her glasses on. She's putting on her scrubs. And as she comes around the corner, she goes, that voice sounds like it should be on the radio. 
I was like, oh no, here we go. So I was like, well, okay, yes, I am, I am on the radio. All of a sudden the doctor, just to screw around, he's like, this is Pastor Lance, he's famous. And I was like, oh shoot. And as she puts it on, she stops and she goes, I know you. All of a sudden I go, and I'm out. Last thing I heard as I went out, I know you, I was like, oh. That woman knows me in a way my wife does not know me. You understand what I'm saying? And I know somewhere she's at, and I'm gonna pass her in the grocery store and she's gonna be like, mm. I won't even know, I won't even know. Praise God, how about we take out our Bibles? <laughs> Woo! It's called a non sequitur. All right, let's go. Take out your Bibles, take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, we can begin. You guys, we've been walking through the book of Acts all year long, if you're brand new with us. We're in part 32 of a series we call The Empowered Church. And we've been really talking about Christianity rising from obscurity. In 300 years, it became world dominant in the Roman Empire. And we kind of are reading the story of how in the world did that happen? It kind of rose up and there were a couple big dog groups and one of them was, was Paul the Apostle. We are currently following his second journey out, kind of traveling the known world in his area, sharing Jesus Christ wherever he goes. He had shifted from his home territory, which we call modern day Turkey, and he shifted over onto the Greek side of things. He's been ministering there for a little bit. And we were kind of reading his story. He's got a crew with him. There's a prophet by the name of Silas. There's his protege named Timothy. And then the author of the book, Dr. Luke. So they're kind of a traveling crew uh, doing ministry around the world. Now, we're going to get into it in one moment here, but I want to begin by making this whole message a little bit more personal. And so I'm going to draw your attention to the fill in the blank with some thoughts. So let me just share this. We say that at Bridgeway, we have a motto. We are scripture-soaked and spirit-led. Now, that can either be theoretical or it can be practical. We're trying to make it practical. But to say that you are spirit-led and actually live it means you have to have a commitment to surrender and obedience. You cannot be spirit-led if you're telling God what to do. You cannot be spirit-led if you're in charge. Either he is leading you or he's not. So again... It is a commitment to obedience and surrender. Y'all remember Henry Blackaby's book, Experiencing God. That was way back in the day. And he had a famous phrase. He said, you cannot go with God and remain as you are. It demands change because God's going to go do things. God wants to do things with you and you don't get to call the shots. You see, it's his kingdom, not our kingdom. It's his life, not our life. We were bought with a price. We serve him. We walk with him. But the more and more we are control freaks, the more we're going to struggle with this aspect of our life, right? Well, I'm doing my thing. I got to do it. You understand it's totally counterculture. Everything in our culture right now, whether it's on socials, right? If we're talking about TikTok or X or whatever Twitter is now, I don't even know, um, or whether or not it's Facebook or it's Insta, right? On all these things, you see highlight reels of people talking about how they're building their kingdom. Here's how I built my business. Here's how I built my life. Here's how I became super funny. Here's how I made a million dollars. Here's how I got into the music business. And it's all this, I'm building my kingdom. Here's how I did it. So it's super counterculture to be able to say, not my will, but thy will be done. It's super counterculture to begin to have this weird attitude that John the Baptist had, which was, he must increase and I must decrease. Because what that means is it's not all about us. What it means is, as precious as we are to God, sometimes we got to put our plans on the back burner for his plans. It means that when he says go, we go. When he says stay, we stay. Whether or not that is comfortable. And there's this internal tension between what we want and what he wants that is constantly going. But at some point, we need to see ourselves as servants of God and not advisors to God. You tracking with me? As long as we are still fighting with what we're going to do, we are seeing ourselves as equals to God. 
when will he be able to be God and we're not? Where what he says, we say, yes, Lord. You see, success for a Christian is obedience, nothing more. Doesn't matter whether or not you have good ideas, doesn't matter whether or not you have godly ideas, it's whether or not we're obedient. That is ultimately why we're here. What we must do is string together a series of yes, Lords, and that will change the world. Not I'm more famous, I'm a bigger, better person, I can do greater things. Listen, I'm not telling you not to max out what God gave you. What I'm telling you is it can't be all about us. He has to be the one in charge. But I realize that we hang on to all kinds of stuff. When you put your identity in something that you do, you'll stay too long. You know what I'm talking about? Because it means too much to you. You're not holding it with open hands. You're holding it with a grasp that you believe that if somehow you let it go, you would become undone. So weird what we hang on to. I think that for many of us that have been in the church for a long time, we have this idea that, man, I've given God, I've given you a lot. And if we had a list of 10, we'd be like, I checked off seven things. I mean, it was like, oh, well, I used to be really about partying. Okay, I'm not doing that anymore. Well, I, I really used to be about this when I date. I'm really not doing that anymore. We can check them off, and we feel really good about 70%. And I feel like at any moment, the Holy Spirit can go, okay, I just have one question. Why are those three such a big deal? Like, why are you so into those three? And you'll kind of know what your three are is that any time you're in church and the pastor starts talking about surrender and you start getting nervous about an area. You're like, I hope he doesn't talk about this one. You know what I mean? Like, I feel that too, and I'm the one preaching. <laughs> I'm like, dude, don't talk about that right now. Okay, because inside we feel like if I don't have this, I'm gonna die. This is too important to me. And I feel like that God is not saying, hey, I just want you to not have anything. I think what he's telling you is I need you to give up the less so I can give you the better but God this you don't understand I think God understands more than we think he understands but God you don't understand this person I'm dating I understand they're not a believer but they're they're my everything and he said I think you just answered your question I thought I was your everything what the heck is going on there when did you turn a person into an idol that doesn't work Oh, but God, I don't, I don't know how. I mean, I've tried to get out of stuff. I've tried to break addiction. I've tried to break compulsion. I've tried to do recovery. It just, it doesn't work. And God said, so far, you think I'm done? No, kiddo, you're in process. But once again, why are we hanging on to what we hang on to? You know, it's interesting because for us as Christians, we always look for little pockets where we're allowed to be control freaks. And one of those is on our ministries, right? Anything that you're doing for God, oh, it's my small group. It's my community group. It's my ministry. It's my friend group. It's my, I'm the mentor of this person. That's my mentee. We start getting so territorial. But what if God asked you to let it go? Man, I've had to let go of ministries. I am not cool with it. I'm not okay. I'm not that mature. Man, it messes with my head because I feel like at least in that area, I'm like, God, it's already godly. It's already good. Can't I just own that? Here's the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. It's simply this. Even our ministry isn't ours. Even our ministry isn't ours. Our life is not ours. Our building of our kingdom is not ours and even our ministry isn't ours. I don't believe that Paul the Apostle would ever say that he did a perfect ministry. As a matter of fact, I think he'd probably be the first one to highlight missed opportunities. He'd probably highlight weaknesses. But I do believe he would say one thing. I was obedient. You guys, the reason why Paul the Apostle was one of the greatest Christians that ever lived on this planet is because he kept saying, yes, Lord. And the world has never been the same. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 18, verse 1. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. If you need a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. It's page 927. I'm reading out of the ESV. 
If you follow along with me, I kind of just add in some background and context and uh, try to help clarify some of this stuff. Last time we were together, we were talking about the fact that wherever Paul went, he would always kind of go through the same process. He would first start with talking to his Jewish people. That was his wheelhouse. That was what he was good at. And he would spend all of his time explaining from the Old Testament through prophecy why the Messiah was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He had a lot of opposition because to a lot of the Jewish people, they were saying, I don't think he fits. I'm struggling with this. I'm just not seeing it. So they would go back and forth. But when it came to non-Jews, he had to back way up and start talking about there's a personal God and that personal God wants connection with you and there's such a thing as a sin problem and there's a salvation thing. So we watched Paul tailor his ministry to his audience. And we were saying that every one of us, a salt and light in the world, everyone that calls themselves a Christian, we are called to do the exact same thing. Please share the good news in a way that someone can understand. Meet them where they're at love on them, take them the next leg, show them who Jesus is, yeah? That's our job. So he is now going to go to a brand new city, one of his most important ministry locations. Let's go ahead and see how it goes. Acts chapter 18, verse one, give you a little context just in this first verse. It says, after this, Paul left Athens, Greece, and he went 40 miles west to the city of Corinth. All right, let's pause there. Corinth is a pretty famous city. It was commercially a big deal. It was politically a big deal. It's in modern-day Greece. And so if you know anything about geography, as Turkey is on one side, Asia Minor connects in with Europe. As you go down in Europe, Greece on the island or on the mainland is a little bit thin, goes down to a pinpoint, and then has a big bulb at the bottom. That's called the Peloponnese. In that, Corinth is at that pinpoint tying the two sides together. The reason why that's important is they control travel. Anyone that comes into that part of the world, if you had a big cargo, you took it by ship. You either needed to go around, which would cost you millions of dollars, or you go through Corinth and you only pay a couple million dollars. Do you understand what I'm talking about? That allows them to have control. That allows them to control trade. That allows them to become a very, very wealthy city. Now, back then, they drug ships across land. They had an ability to travel across the land. Nowadays, if you go over there, there's a canal. There's a Corinthian canal, kind of like the Panama Canal, has locks and you can kind of move your ship through, and once again, they're still strategic, they're still important. But back then, they were a seaport city, and that meant with a ton of money and a ton of travelers, you get a ton of debauchery. And it was just lit up wicked. Because we know that, because in ancient history, to be debaucherous was the nickname Corinthian. If your city is the nickname of everything that's messed up, you have a pretty messed up city. Paul has just walked into that city and he's gonna have one of his most important ministries. There are two letters that he wrote to them called First and Second Corinthians. And he began to realize it was a tough place to be a Christian. So let's see how it went. Pick it up in verse two. And there in Corinth, he found a Jewish man named Aquila, a native of Turkey city in Pontus. It's, it's called Pontus. It's about 500 miles from Paul's hometown. So once again, he's like, dude, you're from where I'm from? That's sweet. Okay, great. They had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because the fifth Roman emperor Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome the year before. So he went to go see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, he worked with them, for they were tent makers by trade. All right, let's pause. This is one of the greatest power couples of history. Priscilla and Aquila are this dynamic duo. Right here, because it was an introductory statement, you have the dude's name first. Every other time, the woman's name is first. Why? That's very significant. You don't do that in the ancient world. Husbands and wives, men are named first, women are named second. Not in this case. 
The only reason the secular ancient world would flip it is if she was of clear higher status than her husband. And I'm talking about maybe she was royalty. So notice it says the husband was Jewish. It says nothing about the wife being Jewish. Maybe she was Roman. Maybe she was royal. Who knows? But what's interesting is Luke writes it this way. Luke doesn't care about status. Why would he write it that way? Whenever the Christians did it, usually it was because the person whose name first was more important in the ministry. You go, well, that's interesting, because now we have a reversal because Priscilla was more influential in Christianity than her husband. Now, why is that? Well, we don't know. Could have been simply personality. Could have just been she was the dynamic teacher one, she was the strong one, and he was the business guy. I have no idea why that is the case, but the Bible highlights it. You're going to find out she's part of the one who disciples Apollos, this crazy cool preacher, and they just do massive ministry. They're not only going to be Paul's closest friends and co-workers in the ministry, but they are actually going to be co-workers in literal business. They're going to travel with them. They're going to set up churches. This team is amazing. Now, it's funny because as a single young Christian, so many of us dream of this, right? Oh, it's going to be so awesome. I'm going to find somebody and we're going to be in ministry together. He's going to be hot and he's going to be ripped and he's going to be totally into Jesus. And woo, right, we're getting some of those. Yeah, praise the Lord. Amen. And, and we're going to go into ministry together and we're going to do everything together. We're never going to be apart. Already you're unsettling. Probably too needy. Anyway, we're moving on. We love this idea because we're like, man, it would be so cool, so cool, so cool. Hold on. Only if God graces you that way and gives you the same assignment. Otherwise, heck no. I'm going to tell you right now, there's a reason Susie and I are not in ministry together. Do you understand? That is for the security of the children. Okay? Listen, she has her calling. She has her gift. She does her thing in the church. I do my thing, right? We're not doing the exact same thing because, once again, we're built different, have different assignments. There's nothing wrong with that. That's awesome. But every once in a while, and it's super rare, there's a husband and wife team that have very similar callings, very similar direction, very similar gifting, and they can light it up. And they're pretty amazing. But it's really rare. This is one of those couples. It says they were tent makers by trade. What does that mean? You know, well, they make tents. Okay, great, genius. What I'm telling you <laughs> is in the Bible, it actually says that they're leather workers. It doesn't say that they're tent makers. Now, we use that phrase, tent makers, a lot nowadays. It means that you do, you do ministry on the side. You have a daytime job, and then you do ministry on the side, which, by the way, is how Christianity dominated the world. This whole business about, oh, there's pastors that get paid to do this, and that's their whole full-time job, that's weird. That is not how Christianity took over the world. Christianity took over the world by regular folks who work a day job. That's how it became powerful. Those folks lit up by the Holy Spirit, moving in God's power, sharing their faith with their spheres of influence is how it went world dominant. If we leave it to the professional Christians, nothing's going to get done. There's not enough of them. This whole idea that I could be a pastor and that all my attention is poured into this and it is my job, that's weird. It's an anomaly. It's not how Christianity was designed. I have to have a special grace for that. Praise God that I have that opportunity, but it's not how Christianity is normally. And when we talk about these leather workers, let me explain something to you. This is, I thought this was rather fascinating. So the reason why we know it wasn't just tents is because Paul got involved with it, and it says they had the same trade. Paul comes from a region of the world in Turkey that was world famous for having developed a waterproof material out of goat's hair. Now, if anybody met him, they'd be like, dude, where'd you train? He's like, oh, I'm from Tarsus. They're like, oh, sweet. You guys are the ones that came up with the waterproof stuff. And he would be able to make them. If you have waterproof material, how many ways can you use it? 
Tons, right? You would have cloaks where the water would go off. We're talking about the ancient world where you're out in the elements. It's not just your tent. It's also clothing. It also is tarps. It also has to do with different curtains. It has to do with a whole bunch of stuff. But when they make that stuff, they work with animal products. It's either working with a leather or working with a hair or working with whatever. That's what it means. So that's how they made their living. Paul worked his way all the way through his missionary journeys. Nobody was supporting him and gave him all his money. He worked a day job wherever he was. All right. Then it says this. They were chased out by the emperor Claudius. Claudius was the fifth emperor of the Roman Empire. He followed a dude named Caligula. Anybody remember him? Yeah. Okay. So low bar, right? <laughs> After you finish with that guy, anybody's awesome. So Claudius came in, and for whatever reason, he got sick of the Jews and Christians because he lumped them together and he kicked them out of Rome. Why? Well, the really, there's only two reasons that, that Rome cared. Don't create political unrest or we will smash you. Second one later on became a problem for Christians, which was as emperor worship became a big deal, Christians wouldn't bow their knee to the emperor. They said that Jesus is God and Jesus is king, and that created a big problem. Because the Romans were like, listen, you can do your own thing. Don't mess with us. Don't mess with our emperor. Well, somehow something triggered off. They got kicked out of Rome and they're traveling. But I have a question for you. Why does God allow persecution? Because you got to think about it this way. If he's king, if Jesus is king, why doesn't his team just win all the time? Like, let's say, for example, you were like, hey, I, I feel like I need to start a church. I want to start a church in San Francisco. Why can't you as a Christian go into San Francisco, plant a church, everybody gets saved, miracles always happen, every prayer request is answered? Because you're with the big dog. God can do anything he wants. Why don't we always win? Because I can tell you right now, I've never seen a ministry where we always win. I've seen ministries that are hard. I've seen ministries that are challenging. I've seen ministries that are crazy. But I've never seen one where we always win. Why? God can, so you have to ask the question, why doesn't he? Here's my guess. I think it has to do with two principles. Number one, we're not in heaven yet. There will be a time when God puts the bad guys away and we win all the time. That's called heaven. We're not there. Therefore, we have a kingdom of now, but not yet. There is still an alive and an active enemy creating havoc. As long as that exists, as long as we're broken people in a broken world, there's going to be persecution, difficulty, and problems. Second reason, I'm not so sure that the church doesn't need persecution. I think Christians need hardship. Here's why. Statistics show that a church that's at peace for too long, Christians that are in comfort for too long, become weak and useless. You want to talk about a church that's fiery? You want to talk about a church that calls down heaven? We're talking about a persecuted church. We're talking about a church that's under threat. We're talking about a church, because here's the deal. When something really bad happens, you put away silly arguments and you pull together as the family of God. And suddenly unity makes a difference. All I'm telling you is I'm not so sure we don't need persecution just to be legitimate. When hardship comes, it might be God's way of sharpening you and allowing you to flex your muscles. It's not always bad. All right? So how did the ministry go practically? Go to verse 4. And Paul reasoned as is normal in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. A few weeks into his stay, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, and the team was back together, Paul was completely focused on sharing the Word of God, testifying to the Jews that the Messiah was Jesus of Nazareth. And when they opposed and reviled him, okay, let's pause. You got to understand what that means. He's sharing, Jesus is the Messiah. They're like, I don't think so. He's like, no, seriously. They're like, no. And they argue, 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 argue. Finally, they're like, dude, we think you're being blasphemous. Knock it off. You're out of line. And they started not only shutting him down, they started getting personal and attacking on him. Like they just rose up. You don't have any place here. You don't know what you're talking about. You're dishonoring God. Well, it got super tense. So what did he do? Look at the reaction. 
he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. He storms out. Okay, what just happened? Okay, the whole shaking out your garments thing works better with a blouse. The, it, like you have a cloak or whatever, the shirt is way too tight. So you shake, you shake this stuff out, right? And this is what it means. I'm so done with you, I don't even want a fleck of your dirt on me. Ooh, that's hardcore. Next time you guys break up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, just shake out your clothes and go, your blood is on your own head. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm innocent. You start screaming and being dramatic. BYA, that was a joke. That is, don't do that. That is a terrible idea. Okay. The other thing that's interesting is he said, your blood is on your own head. His point was, I'm out. Uh, you know what? I don't need to beg you to be a Christian. I am here to present truth. You don't want to accept that truth. I'm not carrying you on this. And then it's interesting. He says, I'm going to the Gentiles. Now, that is a way of poking them. And the reason why is that the Jewish people believe they had the corner market on Yahweh. They had the corner market on God. They're like, we get miracles, we get God, everybody else are losers, right? Well, all of a sudden, he's like, you know what? I'm going to go to the Gentiles. We're going to have fun with God. We're going to have miracles. We're going to have a revival, and you're not invited. And they're like, you would never. And he's like, yes, I would. I'm going right now. Wham! And he slams the door. And you look and you go, you're being so childish, what is wrong with you? Well, here's the funny thing. It's actually a plan of God. Do you guys know, for all of us that are not Jewish, do you understand the only reason we're in the family of God is we got added? Do you guys remember that? Because the Jewish people are like, we are God's kids. And all of a sudden, God's like, oh, look, a new family. And he grafts us in, like literally like on a tree, grafts in this branch, and we get added to the family. Well, that ticked the Jewish, the Jewish people off. They were like, no, I don't want them coming in the family. And all of a sudden, God's like, oh, look, I'm doing miracles. Oh, I'm having a revival. Look at them. I am really treating them well. And it's supposed to agitate the Jews to jealousy so that they would say, I want a revival too. You understand that's the plan? We are a little poking stick as Gentiles to let the Jewish people know that God has never stopped trying, never stopped wanting a revival, never stopped wanting them not to be his people. He has always been chasing after them, and we are part of the plan. Then the funniest part about this is look at the next line. And he left there to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, and his house was next door. <laughs> that was like the most anticlimactic, I'm out of here, bam! <laughs> and you're like, dude, we can see you out the window. And he's like, oh, yeah, but I'm somewhere else. Okay, it's, it just looks really stupid, right? You're like, you should have like ran down the road, then went around the block you know, and then came back in. But he's right next door. It says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, that is the big dog Jewish leader, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Ooh, that's a game changer. Because when the Jewish people were like, I don't think he's a Messiah. I don't think he's a Messiah. And all of a sudden their leader goes, I do. They're like, oh, shoot. Man, what are you doing? Don't flip. And he's like, I just got to tell you, it's the way I see it. His whole family gets saved. A bunch of people get saved. And it looks like, wow, I love this. Good things are happening. But one phrase I want to highlight real fast is it says he believed in the Lord and was saved. How much belief is required to be saved? Because here's what it's not. The majority of Americans, roughly 90% of Americans, check the box that they are Christian. And what that means is, is on a form, they would say, well, I'm not Muslim. Well, I'm not Hindu. Well, I'm not Buddhist, so I guess I'm Christian. Is there a God? I don't know, probably. Uh, is Jesus a God? Yeah, I'm sure, whatever. I'm not Jewish, like I wasn't born Jewish. Okay, I'm going to check that box. That is not Christianity. You see, the word for belief in Scripture is better translated trust. It means you don't just think the facts are possible. 
You believe them to be reality and you alter your life around it. That's true saving faith. In other words, the most famous example is if I told you there's a fire in the lobby and it's coming in here, if you all just sit there, it means you think theoretically that's probably true, but you don't really believe it. If you get up and run out the door, you believe it. That's the difference. So when we're talking about Christianity, we don't get saved because we intellectually think it's a possibility. We get saved because it becomes our reality. Does that make sense? Yep, nobody thinks so. Okay, great. Let's move forward. Go to verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I'm with you. No one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. All right, let's pause right there. Jesus himself came to Paul in a vision. That's super rare, you guys. That's hardcore. He didn't send an angel. He didn't give him encouragement through somebody else. Jesus showed up in a vision. Why? Why is he being all extreme? Because Paul was in real trouble. How do we know that? Because you never tell someone, do not be afraid, unless they're what? Afraid. You don't tell someone, don't stop preaching unless they're in danger of what? Stopping preaching. Something's not right. Paul is not doing good. He's doing terribly, and that's why Jesus showed up himself. How do we know he was doing terribly? Not just that information, but the letter to the Corinthians starts like this. When I was with you, I was in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul admitted, I was not doing good, you guys. What was rattling this guy so much? I wonder if it finally just broke on him. You realize there was that radical group of Jewish zealots that was chasing him everywhere. They got him beat. They got him thrown into jail. They had him, what, in, in stocks. They, they were hunting him. He could go 50 miles away, they'd follow him. He'd go 100 miles away, they'd follow him. They have been hunting him for years. He can't shake it. And now he's in the middle of Corinth where this is already going to be a terribly difficult ministry. He's already been kicked out of the synagogue. He already feels like he's losing his footing. And who knows when those guys are going to show up. And he said, God, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. Man, I'm just freaking out. I'm coming unglued. And Jesus came in and said, I got you, kiddo. You know, unfortunately, many of us believe that people on the radio, people on stage, people on podcasts are somehow different than us, that they don't get afraid too, that they don't have doubts, that they don't have struggles. And we look at them like as if they're a higher quality of person, a different sort of Christian. But you guys, I'm one of those people, and I'm exactly like you. I've been very honest about my weaknesses, about my fears, about my struggles, of course, big dogs get scared. God has to come and encourage them just as much as he does anybody else. It's not easy. Just because someone is being used by God doesn't mean they can handle it. And so they come undone, and Jesus has to come in close or we're all going to quit. I need you so desperately to have experiences with God of depth like this, or in your darkest night, you're going to walk away. Too many of us have kept this so intellectual. We were raised in an environment that told us not to trust our emotions, and so we shut them off. I don't think any relationship can survive without emotion. I think you have to have experiences with God. You have to be able to have supernatural engagement. I think you have to be able to have deep prayers that are answered and ones that aren't. I think you and I need to walk in real life with Jesus Christ so we can hang in there on the toughest days. We're the same, you and I. And so he was ready to quit. And God said, hold on, I got people around here, I got me around here, and we're gonna be doing okay. Then what's so ironic is, look at the next verse. God's like, no one will attack you. Look at verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul 
And they brought him before the court, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Boy, that sounds like God ruined a promise. God said, oh, they're not going to hurt you. And I want you for a moment to feel that experience because you felt it. You thought that God was going to do one thing, and all of a sudden another thing happens. You're like, God, see, that's why I can't trust you, right? How much would Paul have walked through that? You literally said, God, that people were not going to harm me, and I just got attacked. They just drugged me in front of the court. Here I am again. What, do I go through another beating? Do I go through another imprisonment? Lord, this is the whole reason why I was freaking out in the first place. And you know what I believe God told him? Kiddo, hold on a second. I'm not done. Hold on. I know. What did I tell you? You said they wouldn't attack me. I didn't say they wouldn't try. I said they don't get to hurt you. Watch what happens. This is crazy. It says, when Paul was about to open his mouth to defend himself, Gallio, that's the governor, said to the Jews, if this were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since this is a religious matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge in these things. And he drove them out of the court. And so in anger, they all beat the new synagogue ruler named Sosthenes and beat him publicly in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention attention to any of it. All right. I don't know if you saw the miracle. Let me explain it to you. The Jews made a united attack. I bet you anything it was that same crew that came in and stirred everything up. Here we go again. And Paul was like, I can't handle this. God said, I got you covered. Watch what happens. They bring it before Gallio. Do you guys know who Gallio is? I I didn't until I did research. Anybody ever heard of the Stoic philosopher Seneca? Anybody heard of that guy? He's a pretty famous dude. That's his brother. It's a very famous family. As a matter of fact, in history, Seneca was Emperor Nero's mentor, who eventually Nero turned on, killed him, and Gallio's, the brother, committed suicide just afterwards. It's like this tragedy, right? But Seneca, the brilliant writer, wrote about his brother. And he said, I'm going to tell you about my brother. My brother is brilliant. My brother is super chill. And my brother will not suffer fools. He is not going to allow a bunch of people mouthing off about stuff. He doesn't play that. That's what he wrote. So how interesting he was in charge when these Jewish radical group attacked Paul again. And God goes, watch this. That I can't believe this guy. This guy's doing all this bad stuff. You know what he responded with? And I'm going to quote what my daughter learned in college. Are you ready? Here we go. This is what he said. Not my circus, not my monkeys. Okay? I mean, I want, this is something you guys got to adopt. This is a fantastic phrase. Okay? It just means not my problem. That ain't my circus, ain't my monkeys. I'm not getting into it. And he literally just washed his hands. Guys, I don't do this stuff. But when he said that publicly, he created Roman case law. So now, Rome will no longer hear it, which means that team that's been attacking him all these years no longer has any judicial right to be heard. And God took that attack, flipped it, and made it the biggest peace move of all time. That's the power of God. You guys, I'm going to give you a practical example. On Sunday night, last Sunday night, we're doing worship, prayer, and healing night. Those of you that were there, you understood this. All of a sudden, I'm watching worship, I'm worshiping, and all of a sudden, Pastor Dylan starts to act a little odd, and he walks off stage. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, something ain't right. Comes back out, says, you guys, I'm going to be honest with you. I am in the middle of a full-blown panic attack. I haven't had one of these in a long time, but I feel like the enemy is messing with me. I refuse to let him win, so I came back out, right? Couldn't have let it better. He's still in the middle of it. It wasn't even like it was over and he felt better. He was super messed up. And he came out and he's like, but I refuse to let the enemy shut down worship. 
and he starts to sing again. Well, I came up after him on the mic, and I was livid. And I was like, how dare the enemy attack our leader right in the middle of this? This is God's time. And I went off on this tirade, right? I was like, you know what? Forget that. How many people have anxiety? And everybody raised their hand. I was like, forget it now. Now everybody gets healed. Let's go. And I'm just like screaming and yelling. It was just such an overreaction. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I was, that was the whole thing. I know the nature of my God and what the enemy meant for evil. Boom, he'd flip it and he'd do it for good. You know what? Not everybody would have got prayed for their anxiety, but oh, the enemy done messed up. <laughs> now everybody gets prayed for. You understand what I'm saying? This is our Jesus. Praise God. Let's finish it out. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers and sisters, and he set sail for back home, back into the Turkey region in Syria. And with him, he brought his new best friends, Priscilla and Aquila. And at Centria, he cut his hair, for he was under a vow, and then they sailed to Ephesus, his other major ministry. And he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. But when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave from them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. He landed at the seaport of Israel, went up and greeted the Jerusalem church where Christianity started. Then he went down to Antioch, the main hub of Christianity, the first Gentile Christian church, the first place where we were called Christians. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples and covering 1,500 miles. Interesting. And he finally has a successful ministry, and the Jews are like, we want to hear you more. He's like, I got to go. And they're like, dude, what are you doing? Like, we finally have a good one. And he said, I don't know. My Jesus told me to go. Because his identity wasn't wrapped up in successful ministry. He could walk away. He said, I don't know if God's going to call me back to you guys. Side note, does history show that he went back? Yeah, in our next chapter, we're going to find out this is where he has one of his biggest ministries. Because God knew what he was doing. But he said, I'm on a time crunch. It's almost Passover and i got to get back to Jerusalem. Because that's what my God told me to do. So as much as I love having successful ministry, I love saying yes to my Lord more, and I got to go. At the end of the day, Paul covered so much territory, changed so many lives. And how did he do it? One yes, Lord, at a time. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you. Right here, when we have a moment of clarity, Lord, we want to prepare a yes, Lord, on our lips. So when we walk out of here as the church and we go back to our families, our friends, our neighbors, our work, our school, that, Lord, we could be that salt and light. We could be that clay that is moldable. We could be the body of Christ doing what you as the head tell us to do, that, Lord, we would not be detached from you. We would not argue with you, but we'd be ready with a yes, Lord. Because I truly believe, God, you have a lot of stuff you want to do, and you would love to do it with your kids. So, Lord, we're going to afresh say, God, use us as you wish. It is for your glory, not ours. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.